Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. It's really going to help you if you don't have a Bible uh, to have one. So if you didn't get one the first time around, just put your hand up and they'll bring you one. But it'll help me to turn to Romans chapter 7 and page 1133. Does anyone need a Bible? Okay. Well, while you look that up, um, it's quite hard to be united when there's a diverse group of people. That's what our politicians are finding, which is, I guess, why we've got another general election on the way. It, it can also be quite hard in churches. How does a church stay united when you um, have different groups of people saying different things? How do you stay united and, and focused on the most important things? When I was in uh, America, I pastored a church there for nearly eight years, and um, I met a group of Christians who basically let me know that they didn't think our congregation was being faithful to the Bible. That's because we did not celebrate the Jewish festival days, and we didn't require of our members to keep to the, uh, the, the food kosher laws of the Old Testament. Um, they did. And it was hard not to pick up that sense of superiority that they felt they had. They were the genuine Christians. They're the ones who took the Bible seriously. And we were being an unfaithful uh, church to God and his word. And I guess it would have felt a little bit like that for some of the Jewish believers in the first century. They could just about accept that non-Jewish people, that Gentiles could become uh, could come and find salvation in the Messiah. But actually, they would really effectively also need to become Jewish if they were properly going to be part of God's people. Uh, they would need to, the men would need to be circumcised, they would need to follow the food laws and, and follow the feast days. And of course, as Paul is writing to a church in Rome which is made up of both uh, Jewish believers and uh, non-Jewish Gentile believers. If you have these differences of opinion, you can imagine that would be quite a complex issue to deal with in the church. This summer, we returned to the, the church that I pastored. Uh, we left there about 10 years ago, and we returned, and it was great to see everybody, but I noticed a lovely Christian uh, family were not present, so I asked the lead pastor about them, and he told me that they'd actually left the church because they did not believe that the church was taking holiness seriously. Uh, they believed that there were not enough specific warnings from the pulpit laying down the law of what Christians could specifically watch or not watch on TV, or the, the movies that they could attend or could not attend uh, in order to be uh, growing in holiness. To their mind, it was good that the church preached the gospel but um, if, the, if the Christians in the church were really going to grow, they would need to kind of um, follow more rules and guidelines to help them grow in holiness and to hold them to greater accountability. And they felt that wasn't happening, and so they left. What is the relationship of the Christian to the Old Testament law? It's a big topic. And we're not going to cover everything that could be said about it. But we are going to think about that a little bit this morning. I mean, we're saved by God's grace. That's clear as we look through the book of Romans. But 
Do saved people need to follow rules and guidelines in order to maintain their relationship with God? Well, what does God have to say to us? Well, let's, let's read Romans chapter 7, which begins to address this. We're just going to focus on the first 13 verses today. Let me read it. Follow along. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to a husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not have known what sin was, had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. This is God's word. Well, I'm sure you notice it. This is a chapter about God's law. Um, Nearly every verse has something either about the law, the commandments, or the written code. It's mentioned um, in every verse of the first 14, about 30 times in the chapter. And so what is the place of God's law in the life of the Christian? Well, there is a sustained picture here through this opening section 
uh, about marriage. There is this image of marriage that's going to help us think about this issue. And the first thing we should see is how marriage to the law is deadly. Marriage to the law is deadly. When our unchanged, sinful human heart is connected to God's laws, this is a destructive and deadly marriage. Paul elaborates on this really in verses 7 to 13. He uses the first person singular to describe his experience as a Jewish man, as someone under the authority and the rule of God's law. The reason why this marriage is so dangerous and deadly, it's not down to the fault of God's law. Look at verse uh, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not, he says. Of course not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, God's law is holy. It's righteous. It's good. It's, it's, it reveals to us what sin is. It identifies for us what is, what is right and wrong. You know, I wouldn't know uh, that it was wrong to covet my neighbor's Lamborghini uh, unless God told me in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. God's law exposes sin. It shines a light into the darkness of my human heart. But in a perverse way, that very activity can stir my sinful nature into action. For it not only identifies sin, but it seems to have the effect of multiplying my sin. It's as if I was walking around a dark house and I go into a dark room and I shine the torch into the corner and I, the, the flashlight reveals a scary monster. And the problem is that the scary monster can now see me and seems to get agitated by the light and comes running for me. That's what the law does to my sinful nature. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So not only did he hear you should not covet, it seemed to sort of make him covet loads of different things. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once, verse 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. You see, our sinful nature exploits God's law and provokes further sin. Uh, the truth is we can actually normally put up a good show on the outside to other people, but in truth, in our hearts, it can be full of all sorts of dark jealousies and sinful desires. And although Paul is relating his own experience as a Jewish man, in truth, uh, this is the case for anyone descended from Adam, for we all have a sinful nature. To illustrate this, next time you have a child in your house, what I'd encourage you is to do a little experiment. Take them into the kitchen and point to the furthest cupboard in the corner and say to them, there is something locked in that cupboard. 
And you must not look at it. It is secret. Do not look in the cupboard. And then leave the kitchen for about an hour. What is going to happen? You all know what's going to happen. If you'd not mentioned the cupboard, the, the child would have paid no interest in the kitchen cupboard whatsoever. But as soon as you hear the commandment, there's something in the human nature that goes, oh, it's stirred up by commandments. You know, if you were to see a, a letter addressed to somebody else, and on the front it says private and confidential, are you more likely or less likely to want to read it? Private. Confidential. That is the human heart. It is provoked by commandments to do wrong. And that is how utterly destructive and sinful sin is. It takes something that's good and holy and righteous, the law of God, and it seizes it and it actually increases sinfulness. And it puts me under the condemnation of having broken God's law and it puts me in a situation where I'm facing God's judgment and eternal separation from God forever. Look at verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, this, you know, being linked to Adam, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. The second thing this chapter tells us is that God has ended our marriage to the law through death. And this is what the little opening section is about in chapter 7. Paul, Paul gives a principle that no one can doubt. 7 verse 1, the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. The good news is that when you die, none of the laws of the land will apply to you. That's the good news, right? And then he illustrates this with the topic of marriage in verses 2 to 3. And the classic Church of England liturgy goes something like this. It calls on the two people to, to uh, bind their lives together until death do us part. That's the intention of marriage. So that um, having contracted that marriage, the, the, the woman is now bound to that husband in, in faithfulness. And so if she has a sexual relationship with someone who's other than her husband, she is called an adulteress. But of course, if her husband dies, then she's, she's not bound to him anymore. She's free to marry again, and, and she's not called an adulteress. She's not being unfaithful. Now, Paul takes that illustration, and he applies it to the Christian believer. You were once married to the law, but that marriage has now ended because God has killed you in Christ. Look at verse 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Now this is a strange concept to us, but we, we saw the terminology used back in chapter 6, the same spiritual reality. If, if you look back at 6 verse 2, um, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? 
Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Today we're going to witness a baptism. And as we've already heard, it's an outward display of, a, of an inner spiritual reality that um, the person being baptized has repented of their old life of sin and is actually trusting Christ and wants to live for Christ. It's actually a funeral we're, we're, we're witnessing today. The old Kathleen died with Christ when she put her faith in Christ. The death and the burial of Jesus that's pictured as the person goes under the water is in fact their death and burial That having died with Christ, this changes everything. We saw how it impacted our relationship with sin in chapter 6. But we see in chapter 7 that, that it means that now I'm no longer, I'm dead to the authority of God's law. In the death of Christ, God kills me. This old life is gone. And so the marriage to the law ends. We are no longer under the condemning authority of God's Mosaic law. Its punishments no longer tower over us. We no longer need to live in fear of the wrath of God for our sins. Look at verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. And that's, of course, why we as Christians do not follow the, uh, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, of the Mosaic law. Jesus himself pronounced all foods clean, it says in Mark's gospel, because he came to deal with a far deeper issue of the uncleanness of the sin in our hearts. And so we're free to eat whatever we would like to eat. We're no longer required to the keep the kosher laws. Oh, we're no longer required to keep the Jewish feast days or, or the practice of circumcision. For having died to the law, we've been released from it. You know, how we keep the uh, Jewish feast days as Christians is by clinging on to Christ. All of those feast days point forward to Jesus. He's the reality. It is trusting and holding on to Christ is the way that we celebrate the feast, as it were. But thirdly, notice the purpose of this killing in verse 4. Look back at it with me. You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Christians are raised to a new life, which we'll symbolize by getting the person out of the pool, not too long under the water, you're raised to a new life of a marriage to a resurrected Christ. This is the big image of the New Testament, that the Christian church is now the, the bride of Christ. We are raised to be married and united to Jesus. Now this is an illustration that might sound a bit corny, but it helps me uh, understand this myself, so I'll pass it on to you. Imagine with me, a man hires a, um, a woman to come and do his housework, clean his clothes, clean the dishes, um, you know, uh, clean the house. 
And after a few weeks, he thinks, she's not doing a very good job. So um, he writes up on, on, on a piece of paper exactly how he'd like his clothes cleaned and the house cleaned and, and the things sorted. And he puts it on the notice board in the kitchen. Now, she reads the notice and she, she's pulled up short and she, she despises this guy. But nevertheless, she's going to do it. Now, you're going to love this story because it's a wonderful story. Because guess what? They fall in love. Oh. Oh. This is like Downton Abbey, isn't it? Anyway, they fall in love. And, um, and, they, and they get married. And guess what? The, 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 the list of chores comes down. But now, she is so delighted to clean the house and do the dishes and do all that because she loves him. She just wants to do it. Now, for those who are rankling at the sexism of that, of course, men should be doing the housework as well. Let, let's not get stumbled over that point. But the image helps me, and maybe it'll help you. This is the sort of transformation that's being described in these verses. Look at verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the law. So Claire read to us earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 5, the, the Ten Commandments, the big ten. The holy God who says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not covet. This God has not changed his moral character or changed his mind about those commands. What has changed for the Christian believer whose life is now united to Christ is their heart has changed. So they now desire to serve God. We do not act out of dread of his judgment. We're not fearful of his wrath, for Christ has fully paid for it all. But now we delight to see how his law reflects his character. And we desire to do the things that serve and please Jesus Christ. See, God's Holy Spirit comes into us and, and empowers us to bear fruit for God. In the place of our old life where we bore fruit for death, as these verses say. And see, it is in getting closer to Jesus by trusting him, by, by uh, delighting in his gospel, understanding his grace and responding to that, that we will actually bear fruit for holiness. That we will become more like Christ in our words and our thoughts and our actions. So in the place of anger that would eventually lead me to murder, his spirit actually helps me to respond with patience and love. Instead of flirting and pursuing sexual relationships with people who are not my spouse, we pursue faithfulness and self-control. Instead of pursuing greed that would lead to theft, the, the spirit enables us to grow in generosity and giving. Instead of lying, the Spirit empowers us to be a people who speak the truth in love with integrity. 
Instead of coveting, the Spirit works in me to help me grow in contentment. Not because of the threat of judgment. Christ has dealt with that. But just out of thankfulness for his amazing grace. Because the life of Christ is at work in me by his Holy Spirit. Uh, Christians are always tempted to add legalistic rules. Uh, ways that they find helpful to obey Jesus. They come up with some rules that help them. And the trick is, the danger is they then think, well, I, if you're not doing the things that are on my list, uh, then you're not a very serious person. And they look down on people. Um, and... and, and the, the, the person with those extra rules that might be helpful for them, that they can, can want to bind people's consciences. People love extra rules. They love tick boxes. Uh, because actually, if I can tick my boxes, then I can feel, uh, well, I've got my life together. Not like some of these people who are just a little bit, well, you know. And of course, actually, if I start to mess up on my extra little rules and boxes, I can be in despair because I'm falling short of my own rules. That is not how the Christian lives their life. We don't follow rules out of guilt and fear of judgment. It is a vital, spirit-empowered relationship with Jesus Christ that is motivated by his grace and love. The key is to never forget how amazing is God's grace. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. We have been declared right with God. We have been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we have peace with God. We've now gained access into grace. This is how we live our lives now, surrounded by the grace of God. And so we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. And in a sense, chapter 6 and 7 are a little bit of a digression from all those wonderful truths in chapter 5. Because he's turning to address the uh, potential tensions and conflicts in the congregation in Rome. And so in the hearing of the Jewish believers, he addresses the Gentile believers. Because the Jewish believers are worried this kind of uh, saved by grace alone stuff is going to promote some people to, to be immoral. And so in their hearing, he says, of course not. It doesn't promote sin when you understand God's grace. It doesn't do that. And then in the hearing of uh, the Gentile believers, he addresses the, the Jewish believers to help them understand that the radical change that's happened since they've trusted Christ is that they've died to the Mosaic law. Things have changed. And only when we understand that we all stand together, whether we're from a Jewish background or a non-Jewish background, we stand together on grace alone, in Christ alone, that we boast in God and in his gospel. That is the only basis of true unity together for a diverse people. And when we get it's all of God's grace by simply trusting Christ, then there's hope for every single person out there. There's hope for every single person in Edinburgh today. However badly they've messed up their lives, however uh, legalistic or licentious they are, there's hope in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing gospel. We can now bear fruit for God. Because of the work of his spirit 
in our lives. We don't live in fear and condemnation. We're united with Christ, surrounded by his grace and love. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a great reason to live for him in this week ahead? Let's pray.